Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. Are we on? Good. I'm glad to be back with you all after a few weeks or really a season of visiting and preaching at other local churches uh, from around our region, most of whom are with, associated with our pillar network of churches that we partner with to help plant churches. But all of these churches that I've been visiting or preaching at are supporting the work of Lovettsville Baptist Church, of whom you all will send out in just a few weeks on August 22nd. Certainly that will be a bittersweet service, won't it? Um, myself and, and quite a group of us will, will miss you all. We'll miss gathering here in Hamilton to worship Jesus together with you all. At the same time, and the more I even live up there for a few months, the more I'm convinced how beautiful it is to see another community have another gospel witness, a local church, a church who I trust will proclaim Jesus and display Jesus. And so thank you for your prayers and thank you for your continued support and sacrifice as we seek to reach Loudoun County and the nation and the world for Jesus. It happens through us, his people. Now, this week, how many of you struggled with sin? Yeah, it's not a rhetorical question. I actually want to see your hands. Yeah, me. Now, how many of you, in order to help fight or battle that sin, thought about your baptism? Maybe. How many of you reminisced about past events this week? For those of you who did, was baptism one of those events? Or how many of you discussed goals, ambitions, or future plans with your kids or your teens? Was baptism one of those? Finally, when you, when you share your testimony, whether that's to other Christians or you're trying to evangelize, do you include your baptism as a part of that? Consider what the Apostle Paul wrote to a church battling division in 1 Corinthians. He says, for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. What did Paul tell a church who was battling division? Look to your baptism. Or remember what the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 6. How are we as Christians to think about sin in our life? Well, we can't live in sin because we've been baptized into the death of Jesus, which means we're also raised with Jesus. We live a new life. Paul says, consider your baptism. Now, when it comes to baptism and the Lord's Supper, we tend to go one of two ways. We either elevate it where it doesn't belong. Perhaps some traditions in the Christian faith talk about regeneration being part of baptism or even salvation itself having a tie to your baptism. But on the other hand, and perhaps this is for us, even as Baptist churches, we can even belittle it by treating it as a mere add-on for church membership or an optional nice gesture. After all, it's just water, bread, in the cup. I've heard Christians talk like that before. But if you were watching the news, 
and you saw a foreign country stamping on the American flag, would you say it's just a flag? No, there's, yeah, it is a flag, it is cloth, and the elements are indeed bread and cup and water, but there's a huge significance behind them that gives them meaning. So as we continue this series of church basics, which we're going through as a church, and Pastor Josh spent the first three weeks giving you kind of the foundational, what is a church? What is church membership and discipline and who leads the church? And so thank Pastor Josh for going through that. And if you have not had the opportunity to to hear that, this is really building on that. Uh, You won't be lost today, but you'll be helped to go and listen to those, not right now, but later on. We're going to spend the next two weeks in this series considering the ordinances or the sacraments that Christ has given to his church, which we know as baptism or the Lord's Supper. And of course, this is a reminder, this is not our normal way of preaching. This is topical preaching. This is what does the Bible say about a particular topic? Usually we're going what's called expositional preaching, going book by book, chapter by chapter, some of us even word by word. So it's not a normal way of preaching, but I do think it's helpful from time to time to consider a topic. I think it's a bit more challenging even preparing, because on the one hand, if you're preaching book by book, chapter by chapter, the Bible's got it laid out for you. He's got your outline. This, you're kind of like, what does the Bible say as a whole about this? And so, but here's my prayer for us this morning, Christian, that you would understand these sacraments or ordinances in their proper place and cherish them. You would cherish them. And also as a church that we would not only see the, the vertical aspect that these portray our relationship between us and Jesus, but also the horizontal dimension of these as a church. So that the next time you participate in the Lord's Supper, which we'll be doing next week, or you witness a baptism, you better understand it as a church. And if you're here this morning or you're listening and you have yet to be baptized or you don't take the Lord's Supper and you consider yourself to be a Christian, simple prayer for you is that you would obey Jesus. And finally, you may be here this morning and you're not a Christian. And Christians do some odd things. We gather each week to hear a guy get up here and preach from a book that's 2,000 years old. But perhaps even more odd is we will dunk people in water. Or we will take a, a cup and drink it. And eat a piece of bread from time to time to remember this man, Jesus from Nazareth, who lived 2,000 years ago. Well, if you're not a Christian, those can seem odd, and I can see why they are. But I pray, my prayer for you is that you would see the gospel, the good news of Jesus. Because this is what the Lord's Supper and baptism are all about. They're visible emblems of the gospel. Now, as we dive into this, I'm aware, and you are likely aware, that unfortunately these precious gifts that have been given to us by Jesus to stir up love for him, to nourish our faith, and to strengthen our unity, have caused much controversy and division in the history and even present day of the church. So I'm aware that we're entering troubled waters, if you will, and a tense family meal. And I trust that I've prepared and will proceed with humility, yet conviction humbly. I confess I don't have all the answers that you may be asking. At the same time, I want to preach and explain what I understand God's instructions to be to the best that I'm able. And of course, we can't say all that perhaps we would want to say or even that needs to be said about baptism, but we're going to try to give an overview and summary that I trust will be helpful for you individually and us as a church. 
So if you're here this morning and you take notes, today's a good opportunity to take notes. You'll be helped by that. And if you're here this morning and you don't often take notes, today's a wonderful time to take notes. Because we've got a lot of ground to cover. Now, as, as we dive into this, before we start talking specifically about baptism, as I was preparing for these, these two sermons, I thought of a question that I, I've just never really considered before, and it was, why did Jesus give us water and bread and the cup? Why does Jesus have us get drenched in water in front of a bunch of people and consume bread? Why the rituals? You ever think about that? Why did Jesus say, do this, instead of just telling us something else to say or speak to one another? Well, I don't know the precise answer, but I think it points to the reality and the reminder that Christianity is a religion for the whole person. It's common for us to think of Christianity as something merely in our minds and only in our hearts. We listen to preaching, we read our Bibles, we pray, and don't misunderstand me, these are wonderful and necessary. May we never neglect them. But friends, Christianity is not merely for our minds or only for our hearts. One author, James Smith, notes that one of the first things that should strike us about Christian worship is how earthy, material, and mundane it is. He quotes, I, I quote him, he said, to engage in worship requires a body with lungs to sing, knees to kneel, legs to stand, arms to raise, eyes to weep, noses to smell, and tongues to taste. Baptism and the Lord's Supper include the body, the mind, the senses. And this is how God made us, both spiritual and physical beings. And he communicates with his people in physical ways. As we read this morning, the story of Noah, when God acts in a mighty way, or makes a covenant, or we might call it a promise, it often is accompanied with a sign. And what was a sign for Noah? Well, God could have just told Noah, and he did, I won't do this again. But he put a sign there, in a sense, a stamp, a seal, a guarantee. Abraham, there was circumcision. And of course, when he rescued the people from Egypt, he gave them a meal, the Passover meal. He uses the physical to affirm the, the spiritual. Now, when we think about terms of baptism and the Lord's Supper, they're commonly known as ordinances, or sometimes, depending on the tradition you come from, sacraments. Well, the term ordinance emphasizes the, the command aspect. Baptism and the Lord's Supper were ordained by Jesus. Whereas the word sacrament, and depending on what you're, where you're coming from and as far as a Christ, Christian tradition, you may have a different understanding, but it conveys what is happening in baptism and the Lord's Supper. It comes from a, a Latin word sacramentum, which was used in Latin translations of the Bible. And in Roman law, a sacramentum was a bond, a promise, an oath of allegiance. It was a sacrament when a soldier would enlist in the Roman army and swore allegiance to the emperor. And it was St. Augustine in the 5th century who described a sacrament as an outward and a visible sign of an inward and invisible grace. So I think both terms can be helpful because they perhaps emphasize different aspects of what's going on. All in all, why water, bread, and the cup? I like how J.I. Packer puts it. He says, as the preaching of the word makes the gospel audible, so the sacraments make it visible. 
and God stirs up faith by both means. As we enter to talk about these, I'm, I'm assuming, you know, we could get into a debate with our Roman Catholic friends, but most Protestants understand that there are two ordinances or two sacraments. And Protestants, most Protestants understand that they're not effective in and of themselves. There's a Latin phrase, ex opera operato, which means in and of the work itself. So there are some of our friends who would say, well, you just take the cup. It doesn't matter if you don't understand it or you don't have faith. There's still grace infused in the elements or in the water. We would deny that because they must be informed by the word and by faith. So as we enter these waters, just keep those in mind as, as we go on. But we're going to talk about baptism this morning. I have four kind of sections to think about baptism together. So if you're taking notes, this is the time. Or if you're not, this is the time to listen. We're going to talk about the beginning of baptism, the pattern of baptism, the theology of baptism. And then we're just going to get really practical. How do we go about it here at Hamilton Baptist Church? Um, some of these are longer than others, so don't fret. Number one, the beginning of baptism. We could ask the why and to whom. We could talk about the ceremonies in the Old Testament. We could talk about John the Baptist. Or we could even talk about Jesus who in John chapter 4 was out baptizing John the Baptist. It's great. Jesus is outdoing the guy who's known for baptizing. But we're going to start with a popular passage. The Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Perhaps you can quote this. Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So why do we baptize? Well, very simply, Jesus commanded us to baptize. It's an ordinance. We didn't make it up, did we? But this is not merely individual marching orders given to us by Jesus as you individual Christian. Just go baptize anybody and everybody. I think it's best to understand the Great Commission. Of course, it involves individuals, but I think it's best to understand the Great Commission in the context of the church. After all, we're talking about church basics. Now, why why would I say that? Well, if you were listening to Josh's previous sermons, you may hear some of the same language in Matthew 28 that was used in Matthew chapter 16 or Matthew chapter 18, where we talk about church discipline. Do you hear those echoes in this passage? Who is given authority from Jesus? Well, the keys of the kingdom, as he talks about it, are given to the gathered church in Matthew 18 the local church. Who is guaranteed Jesus's presence? Well, again, in Matthew 18, it's two or three are gathered. He's talking about the local church. And who teaches everything that Jesus commanded? Well, I'd suggest that's best done in the local church. So who should we expect to baptize and where should we expect baptisms primarily, primarily to be happening? Local church. Of course, there are missionary frontier opportunities, and we even see that in the book of Acts with the Ethiopian eunuch. 
but I think primarily it's most helpful for us based on the language and the words that are used in the Great Commission to think this is not merely just for us as individuals, although it involves individuals, but it's given to us as local churches. So why or what's the beginning of baptism? Well, it's given to us by Jesus to his church. That's the first one. We already covered the first point. That's why we baptize. It's the beginning of baptism. Jesus told us to do that. Point number two, that's actually the shortest one. So point number two. So we talked about the beginning of baptism. Let's consider the pattern of baptism, just a way for us to watch and see baptism. And of course, if we want to watch and see baptisms, where do we go to in Scripture? We go to the book of Acts. What happened after Jesus gave his marching orders to his people, to his church? What did it look like when they started fulfilling the Great Commission? Acts chapter 2. In chapter 2, Peter goes back into the streets of Jerusalem to the same people who are responsible for the death of Jesus. And he begins to preach to them. And he beautifully shows them how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament and everything that happened to him. And then he says this, Acts chapter 2, verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, speaking of Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now imagine for a moment that you are one of those Jews. Oh, the justice you would have felt when Jesus, the blasphemer, was crucified and put to death. That blasphemer is gone. But you've been startled by the reports that he's actually not gone. Oh, you know he died. He was buried. But you've been startled because there's reports that he's come back. After all, no one can find the body. And now, as Peter is preaching, you cannot deny it. There's something in your heart that's stirring. Jesus did fulfill the scriptures. Everything that happened to him was part of what God said would happen in the scriptures. It all makes sense. And look at their response in verse 37. Now when they were heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what do we do? What do we do? The one whom we've been waiting for to rescue us, the Messiah, we've killed him. Put him to death. Imagine the grief, the pain, the hopelessness. What do we do? How long do we have till God pours out his judgment on us? They're not asking as if they think there's an option. What do we do? Peter responds, verse 38, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord has called, whom God calls to himself. God grants forgiveness even to those who have rejected and put to death the Messiah. And what does it look like when one experiences this? 
What is the proper response to this confession or allegiance to Jesus? They repent of their sins and they're baptized. Who can do this? Anyone. Who's this promise for? Your children. Anyone who's far off. Everyone whom the Lord calls to himself. Friend, what about you this morning? Before we get into the details of baptism, we have to ask the question, what about you? You, just like those Jews, and just like all of us, stand before God guilty, filled with shame. Sure, you weren't alive when Jesus was crucified. But you stand guilty before a holy God. And friend, you're not holy you need to be united to Jesus. You're not holy, but you're not hopeless. The same apostolic message that Peter was preaching is the same message that we preach and proclaim. Jesus offers forgiveness. You can be united to Jesus, and this happens by faith. He will forgive you. So if you're here this morning or you're listening to this, and you have yet to find forgiveness of sins, find peace, Come to Jesus. The promise is for anyone, anyone who's far off. And what happens when you do? You're united to him, and baptism is the way that this is displayed. Now let's Acts chapter 2. Let's briefly run through Acts and some of the moments of baptism. Remember in the book of Acts, when Acts opens in Acts chapter 1, it says this is going to start in Jerusalem it's going to go to Judea. It's going to go to Samaria. It's going to go to the end of the earth. Well, that's the pattern of the gospel in the church expanding that we see in the book of Acts. So we pick up in Acts chapter 8, and you can just listen. It's Samaritans. It says, when they believed Philip, Philip was preaching to them about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus. It says, they believed they were baptized, both men and women. Even this guy Simon himself believed. And was baptized. Later in Acts chapter 8, we have the scene of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Acts 8, 36, as they were going along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. The apostle Paul, or soon to be apostle Paul, in Acts chapter 9 and immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. And he took some food and was strengthened as well. Cornelius and the Gentiles in chapter 10. Can anyone, Peter can't believe what he's seeing. The spirit of God's been poured out on Gentiles. Can anyone, Peter says, withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Lydia, chapter 16, the Lord opened her heart. Don't you love that? The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well. Household, that's interesting. What's that about? Acts chapter 16, later on. The Philippian jailer, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You and your household. 
And they spoke of the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Chapter 18, the Corinthians, many of the Corinthians hearing, believed, and were baptized. Acts 18.8. And finally, as we conclude our survey of dropping in on scenes of baptism of Acts in chapter 19, there's disciples of John the Baptist. And when they heard this, they were baptized into the name of Jesus. So I kind of throw all of that information out there, not so that you remember every detail. But here's the conclusion. Every baptism, those are the baptisms that are mentioned in the book of Acts. But every baptism takes place in response to hearing and believing the apostolic message. That's just the data of the book of Acts. So we're trying to figure out why baptism. It was commanded by Jesus. And we'll start to, we'll start to ask other questions. But I just want you to see, this is, this is the book of Acts. This is the story of the early Christians and how the church emerged. And baptism, every baptism takes place in response to hearing and believing the apostolic message. To respond to the gospel is to be baptized. It's public. So we, we've considered the beginning of baptism. Where did it come from? It wasn't our idea. Jesus commanded it. He ordained it. And then what does the pattern look like in the Bible? It's not as if we have a book of the Bible called First and Second Baptism. What, what we have is these narrative accounts in the book of Acts. And then when you jump over to the epistles with Paul and, and Peter, you kind of have this reflection. And they're, they're just assuming every Christian's been baptized. And they start to talk about the significance of it. So we want to try to take those things together and help us better understand baptism. So we, we looked, uh, I know it was fast, but just the pattern of baptism. It was in response to hearing and believing the apostolic message. Which we still preach the apostolic message today. It's the gospel. It's the scriptures. But third, what about the theology of baptism or the meaning or what it portrays? It's our third point for today. Well, there are several spiritual realities that baptism portrays. And I've been helped listing these by a, a professor, um, Greg Allison. So I want to give him credit. But, but here's about seven things. Seven realities that baptism portrays or points to. First, you belong to the triune God. If you're baptized, you're associated with the triune God. That's the Great Commission. Make disciples. And how are we to be baptized? Who are we associating ourselves with? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You who were once his enemy, a rebel against the king... You now belong to him. However, keep in mind that your former associations now become your enemies. Your flesh. You used to do whatever you pleased. The world, you followed their ways. Satan himself and his army. Those who were once your associations, now that you belong to the triune God, they now have you in their sight. So being associated with the triune God is glorious, but it's weighty. 
Baptism is not something to be taken lightly. To be baptized is to say you belong to the triune God. Number two, you are united to Jesus. Baptism portrays that you have been united to Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection, dead to sin and raised to newness of life. It's what the Apostle Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 6. He talks about it in Galatians 3, Colossians 2. Romans chapter 6, let me just read you a few verses, the first four verses. He says, what, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live to it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Faith unites us to Christ. That's what the book of Romans is, is, is about. Faith unites us to Christ. Paul is showing us that baptism portrays this. It symbolizes this. It's the physical reality of the spiritual reality. And this reminds us too, friend, that your rebellion, your idolatry against God, your sin and the power that it held on you is put to death in Christ. And a new life emerged from the grave of following and treasuring Jesus. You're united to Jesus. Third, you've been cleansed from sin. This is, the book of Acts doesn't give us a lot of theology. Remember, it's mostly just telling us narrative accounts of what happened. But Acts is clear. You've been cleansed from sin. That's why you're baptized. And it's so closely associated. Four, you've escaped divine judgment. You've escaped divine judgment. We don't like to think about divine judgment. It doesn't sound friendly or even something that a good God would do. But friends, God is just because he is so, so, so good. And even the smallest amount of sin does not go unpunished. It will receive justice. And you and I, because of our rebellion and our sin against God, that's what we have earned. That is our wages. But in 1 Peter, Peter is talking about the flood of Noah as, as we read about this morning, as Josh read for us. And he's, he's beautifully tying the Bible together in the themes of Scripture. But he points back in 1 Peter chapter 3 to the flood and Noah and talks about how Noah was saved. And then he says this in 1 Peter 3 verse 20. He says, baptism, which corresponds to this, the flood, now saves you. Oh, that makes us uncomfortable, doesn't it? He says, baptism now saves you. But he explains, not as a removal of dirt from the body. I don't think the water actually regenerates you or saves you, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Right? He's pointing us to the resurrection, but this is all corresponding to what happened with Noah, the judgment waters of God. That is where you and I belong. But he says, baptism saves you in this way. It does not save you by itself, but in conjunction with the subjective response 
of the pledge of a clear conscience and objectively in the resurrection of Jesus. Let me say that again. Baptism does not save you, but only in conjunction with the subjective response of the pledge of a clear conscience and objectively in the resurrection of Jesus. He's pointing us, though, just as when you're baptized, you go down into the water, the judgment of God, that's what you deserve. But just like Noah was rescued, you too are rescued. We experience a lot of sorrow in this life, don't we? A lot of pain, a lot of suffering. Some of you are going through that even right now. And you can be tempted for a moment to think that that's God's justice on me or God is judging me. But Christian, don't you dare ever think that God's judgment is upon you. As Spurgeon said, who fought much anxiety and doubt and depression and sorrow, he said, my sorrow is not laid on me by a judge, nor inflicted on me as the result of divine anger. There is not a drop of wrath in a river full of a believer's grief. See what he's saying. Christian, the wrath of God, the judgment of God has been taken by Christ on your behalf. There's not a drop left for you. So as you experience sorrow, pain, grief, don't for a moment think that's God's wrath upon you. And baptism points us and reminds us of that reality. We've been rescued from that. That's been paid by the blood of Christ. You've escaped from divine wrath. Five, you've been brought into the new covenant. Circumcision in the Old Testament was the sign that you belong to the people of God. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 through 12, we see regeneration, a new heart, is fulfilling that promise of circumcision. And baptism seems to be the sign of that. It marks us off as the people of God. Colossians 2, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith. Again, it's united to faith. Baptism is united to faith in Jesus. And seven, you've been brought into the people of God. It's baptism. You've been brought into the people of God. Consider what the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12, as we read earlier. For just as there's one body and it has many members, all the members of the body, though many, are one body. So it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews, Greeks, slaves, free. And we were all made to drink of one spirit. Notice, and you, you can look in the writings of the Apostle Paul. Nowhere is he arguing, arguing for Christians to be baptized. He assumes it. He just assumes that if you've come to Jesus, you've been baptized. There is no category, friends, for a Christian who's unbaptized. Again, I'm not saying it saves you or it regenerates you. But you read the New Testament, there's just not a category for a Christian to say, yeah, I'll follow Jesus, but I'm not going to obey what he said to do at first. He assumes it. But it's important, as he says in 1 Corinthians 12, the body. When you're baptized, you're baptized into the body of Jesus. You're united to Jesus and his people. When you repent of your sins and trust Christ in faith, yes, you have peace with God, but you also have peace with his people. A particular people in a particular church where you could be nurtured and held accountable as the New Testament teaches. You've been brought into the people of God. Baptism is not merely 
your allegiance to Jesus. It is that, and his allegiance to you, but it's also showcasing that you belong to his people, specifically showing us the local church. So the theology of baptism. Baptism depicts these realities. Let me be clear, it doesn't create them. Baptism depicts all of these realities. It doesn't create them. It's a gospel emblem. And baptism is see where, where your faith is on public display. As Jesus went down into death, I've been crucified with him. As he was raised, I've been raised. I belong to him. In a sense, it's the seal of conversion. When you get married, you put on a ring. Does that ring make you mar married? No, but it, it showcases, I'm sealing this. When you join a new team, you wear their jersey. Baptism is both vertical and horizontal. Jesus is my king. This is who I am, and these are my people. That's what you're showcasing in baptism. So baptism is rich in what it displays. Remember and cherish your baptism. Consider all the benefits that you've received from Christ that you did not deserve, and may it propel you to obedience. Ignatius of Antioch was writing a letter to another bishop in the church and early leader around the year 110 AD, Polycarp. And he said this, let none of you turn to be a deserter. Let your baptism be your armor, your faith, your helmet, your love, your spear, your patient endurance. May it be your suit of armor. He was saying to his, his friend, his brother Polycarp, who, as we know, was on his way to be martyred, don't desert your faith. Remember your baptism and what it showcases. May it be true of us as well. Finally, baptism in the life of HBC. What do we, what do, we do with all of this? How do, we, how do we take all of this data? Again, we can't cover it all. Maybe this raised some questions in your mind. That's good. Hopefully this is helpful and clarifying as you just look and see what Scripture says. But what about us? as Hamilton Baptist Church. What do we do? Why do we do it? Or why do we do what we do in regards to baptism? After all, it's in our name, Hamilton Baptist Church. Well, first, here we are a product of the Reformation. So our heritage, even if you look back at our history, 131 years and where we come from and who planted us and what's our lineage, we're a product of the Reformation. And when you go back to the Reformation, you see that they were very concerned about the authority of Scripture. They were very concerned about faith alone. And they were also very concerned about getting the sacraments or the ordinances right. They think it took a little bit longer for that last part. And we as Baptists emerge out of a separatist movement in the 17th century. That's kind of our heritage. So we're a product of the Reformation. So we want to, we, by saying that, we want to understand what Scripture says, and that's how we want to guide and rule our church, is by Scripture. Two, we baptize as a church. So we as a church do not promote private baptisms. I think it's best that you're baptized. Again, the Great Commission was given to churches. We think it's best to baptize when the church is gathered together. We don't rush baptism. We want to make sure that your understanding of baptism as a church is clear. You know what you're doing. 
And even for parents with, with children, teenagers, uh, we have a packet that we go through. We want to make sure that you know exactly what you're doing when you're getting baptized. They didn't have to do this in the early church. We don't see this in the book of Acts. But there wasn't all this confusion and perhaps false teaching on baptism. And so we want to be very clear as a church what baptism is and why you ought to be baptized. And we expect those who are being baptized by the church to join the church. So we tie baptism with church membership. So it would be odd to say, I want to follow Jesus. Yeah, I want to get baptized, which marks me off, but I don't want to join his people. We would have a lot of serious questions. Why? What's the disconnect? And we want to talk about that. So we expect those being baptized to, to join the local church. So we're a product of the Reformation. We baptize as a church. And we baptize believers. Why do we do this? Well, not to spend a lot of time, but there's the biblical pattern of baptism that we saw, that we read from the book of Acts. We, we don't baptize babies because we think that would be confusing the covenant that God has given us in scripture membership in the old covenant was by physical birth and if that was true of the new covenant it would make sense for us to keep baptizing our children before faith but membership in the new covenant of which jesus inaugurated is not by physical birth it's by spiritual birth there's lots of books on that you can read but that's one of the most helpful arguments and faith and baptism go hand in hand. Again, the book of Acts, the pattern of baptism is that they heard the apostolic message and they believed and they were baptized. To divorce faith from baptism is not baptism the way the Bible describes it. And there may be some who say, well, church history, they've always been baptizing babies, so why did we change our minds in the 17th century? Well, if you actually start reading why the Baptist movement emerged, it was because they were going back to Scripture and saying, hey, we think this is the best pattern. But also they were looking at the early church. The early church is not a slam dunk case for baby baptisms. It's mixed at best. On the one hand, in the early church, you have people delaying their baptism as close as they can to their death. I don't know how you figure that out. But Constantine did this because they were so afraid that they would commit some type of sin and baptism had this effect that helped your sins and they wanted to be baptized as late as they could before they entered the presence of God. Then on the other hand, you have some people wanting to baptize babies as soon as they're born because the infant mortality rate was so high and they understand baptism to have some type of regenerational effort. And so you have these mixed views Tertullian, who was in the first and second century, which is very early, he's not scripture, but this is what he said. He said, preaching comes first, baptizing later when preaching has proceeded. And when he's talking about Christians, he says, when they are learning, when they are being taught what they are coming to, let them be made Christians and let them be baptized when they've come competent to know Christ. I mean, I could give you other examples on the other side, but I just want to show you at best it's mixed. It's not a slam dunk case in the early church for baby baptism. Fourth, we baptize by immersion as a church. We baptize by immersion. We do this because the word baptizo means to immerse something in water. We think this best symbolizes the death going under the water, coming up out of the water in the new life. 
that's described in 1 Peter 3 and, and Romans chapter 6. The best we can tell, the biblical data seems to indicate that they went down into the water, the Ethiopian eunuch. And the didache, the, sorry, didache, an early church document. It was an instruction manual. Some date it as early to the first century. It, it's really brief. You could go read it this afternoon if you want to. Again, this is not scripture. This is just what did the early church do after the Bible? This is what they said. Concerning baptism, baptized this way, having first said all of these things, uh, earlier what was mentioned in the document, baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in living water, meaning running water. But if you don't have living water, baptize into other water. And if you cannot, in cold and in warm. So they got really specific. But if you have not either of those, pour water thrice upon the head of the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. So it seems to indicate that the normal pattern, at least what was going on in this area, was to get somebody in living or running water and we can assume baptizing them because it says there's an exception. Maybe there's people who were not able to get access to water like this, then pour it over their heads. But that doesn't seem to be the view. The view seems to be dunk them, drench them. And finally, as a church, we do require baptism for church membership. Why? Why would we do such a thing? Well, because church membership is a public, as you've learned in the past few weeks, it's a public affirmation of someone's faith. When you join the church, you're saying, I believe the gospel. I belong to Jesus. And Jesus has appointed baptism as the means by which his followers publicly profess their faith in him. So we say, why do you want to be united to Jesus' people when you haven't obeyed the main way Jesus said to be identified to him? It just wouldn't make sense. To remove baptism from membership, as one pastor, Bobby Jamison, says, erases the line that Jesus himself has drawn between the church and the world. It erases that line that Jesus made. And I love this summary here, as, as one pastor, Timothy Paul Jones, says. He says, the church is inclusive because the church is the community that offers the gospel freely and indiscriminately to everyone. The church at the same time is exclusive because faith in Christ and incorporation into the body must precede participation in the benefits and blessings of this community. And baptism is the God-ordained sign of grace that marks our incorporation into this glorious body. Baptism is what shows that you belong to Jesus and his people. So we're saying to be united with us at Hamilton Baptist Church, you need to do that. And if you haven't done that, We'll gladly do it with you. And of course, we have to define baptism. And we understand baptism is for believers. In closing, if you're here this morning and you claim to follow Jesus, but you've never been baptized, why not? I'm not talking to young children. I think there's wisdom in waiting. That's something that parents in the church need to think through and work through together. We have a wonderful packet that Pastor Josh has compiled together to help parents do that, to think about that. So I'm not talking about that. But the idea of a non-baptized Christian is just foreign to the New Testament. It's just not there. Maybe you have a fear of getting up in front of people. It's not that bad up here, honestly. It might be if I go for another 15 minutes. 
Maybe it's fear of family or others. And if, if that describes you, let, let's talk about that. Let's talk to another church member, talk to one of the pastors. We want to help you through those things. But this is about obeying Jesus, ultimately. You want to be identified with Jesus? This is what he says to do. It's a sign and seal of your confession. And for those of us who have been baptized, cherish this wonderful gospel emblem. Remember your baptism as you follow Jesus. The greed that drives you to neglect what's important, the anxiety that grips you at multiple moments of the day, the bitterness that you've been holding in your heart, the pornography that you continue to dabble in, the anger that feels justified. Christian, remember the water you walked into, the judgment you deserved, the chaos and sin. And remember giving your testimony or having your testimony read or a video or whatever you did in the grace of Jesus that you embraced as a sinner. Remember holding your nose as you were plunged under the water, the fear of death you once had, and being pulled up and taking that first breath, the feeling of forgiveness and life. Remember the applause of the people of God welcoming you into the family. You're part of the family. As real as the water was, was your sin. As real as you being plunged under was the judgment you deserved. As real as being brought up dripping wet is the gift of forgiveness and salvation, which Jesus gives you because he loves you, Christian. Don't undervalue your baptism, Christian. Remember this wonderful gospel emblem. So why baptism? Baptism points us to the gospel. Baptism points us to the church, and baptism points us to Jesus. Baptism is an individual and a church's act to vividly portray and thus declare that you've been united to Jesus and his people. Ephesians 4, 4 through 6, there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all, through all, and in all. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that we have been united to Jesus, cleansed and forgiven of our sins, freed from judgment and given new life, not merely as individuals, but as your people. And what a delight it is to gather with your people today. Thank you for this wonderful gift of baptism, which puts this on display and serves as a lasting sign and seal of your promise to us and all of these wonderful truths. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.